The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. I wonder how many of you here this morning have ever misplaced or lost something that was very precious to you, very valuable uh, to you. And do you remember what it felt like when you searched for that thing and, and, and maybe, hopefully, finally found it? Maybe it was, it was your keys or uh, your phone or your purse or your kid. Um, that's the worst one, right? <laughs> if you've ever temporarily misplaced a child, that's a bad day. Uh, and if you're like, what kind of pastor is this? How could he misplace a child? If you're saying that, it's because you don't have children. <laughs> uh, children from a young age, just learn this ability to disappear as soon as you're not looking. And in fact, we teach them this, this game where uh, when we look away, they have 10 seconds to run as fast as they can and hide somewhere where they can't be found. And we probably should rethink that. But uh, this week, my wife, after uh, wearing this same engagement ring for 11 years now, she, uh, the prongs on it, I guess, started to get kind of loose. And the diamond from her engagement ring fell out. So if you look under your seats... Um, <laughs> Now, it, it fell out, and, and you can imagine what ensued next. You know, we're, we're searching the house uh, frantically um, and experiencing the constant frustration of our, our young daughters wearing these sequins dresses that shed sequins everywhere. And we are basically for 24 hours retracing our steps, trying to remember. You don't really know. When, when did it fall out? Where were you? What were you doing at the time? But I can tell you, we, uh, we turned the house upside down, and we prayed. And thankfully, after about 24 hours, Beth found the diamond from her ring, which is great. Praise God for that. Um, but can you imagine what, what she probably felt in that? She felt this joy at, at having found this, this thing that was precious to her. And more than the diamond being precious to her, it's what it, it symbolizes. It's uh, a symbol of our marriage covenant together. But when you find that thing that was lost, that precious thing, you determine anew to care for it, to cherish it, to treasure uh, what you found. You protect it. You, you cling to it anew. And the question is this, as we were just singing these songs, do you know the value of what we have in Christ? Do you know the, the surpassing worth of what we have in Christ? And in knowing that, the worth that he bestows upon you as followers of him. Jesus often says in the gospels, he says that the kingdom of God is like that. It's like a treasure. It's like a a pearl of great price, a prize worth everything. And this morning, as we open up the scriptures, as we always do, uh, again to Mark chapter 14, we're going to see an example from a woman who knows, she knows the surpassing worth of her Lord Jesus. And this is a woman who, who, in response to him, she'll humble herself, she'll recognize the sacrifice that he is going to make for her in just days, and she will pour out this love offering to him freely and extravagantly. She knows his worth. And in recognizing his worth, she then is counted worthy by the king of kings. And so in her example, we're going to draw out a few characteristics of what it means to be a follower of Christ, what a follower of Christ looks like. And I want to read the passage to you in Mark chapter 14 and also invite you to, it's on your outlines. You can also turn to Mark, uh, John chapter 11 and 12, because that will give us more detail and more context that will help us understand this. But Mark chapter 14, starting in verse one, it says this, it says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. That is Jesus. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, 
As he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Let me set this in context. Uh, in, In John chapter 12, which gives us more insight into what's going on here, Jesus has come into town for the Passover. You'll remember this is the last week of his ministry leading up to the cross. And so Jerusalem at that time of year would swell with thousands and thousands of visitors from all over Galilee and Judea, people from all over the dispersion of Jewish people uh, throughout the world. They would come together for this great uh, feast, this great celebration in Jerusalem. And so Jesus and his friends, as the city's swelling with visitors, they don't stay in the VIP accommodations of Jerusalem. They stay out in the suburbs about two miles outside of Jerusalem in the the town of Bethany, which would have been kind of like an Airbnb hotspot for this time of year. And, And Jesus, though, he has these great friends that he often visits with when he comes down into Judea. In Bethany, he has these friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Are you familiar with these three? Maybe you've heard of them. These are friends that are dear to Jesus. And you should know there's been a lot going on in their life lately. Whether they know it or not, their dear friend and Lord Jesus is going to go to a cross for them by the end of the week in just two days. And remember this, just a few weeks ago, older brother Lazarus had gotten very, very sick. And in his final days of suffering, Jesus, avoiding the threats in Judea, he's waited to visit. He's waited too long. And what happened to Lazarus? He died. Lazarus has, has died. And so this week of mourning and lamenting and burial has taken place. Lazarus is wrapped in linen and perfume and, and spices, and he's been laid in a tomb for days. And then, remember this, Jesus finally comes, and Martha and her sister Mary, they express all the emotions that we would expect from grieving people. They, there is anger, there's disappointment, there's silence, there is talking, there's crying, weeping, all of it. And it's all wrapped up in, the emotion is all wrapped up in this notion that if Jesus had just been there, their brother would not have died. So Jesus, remember what he does. He weeps with them. He listens to them. He responds to them. He meets them on the way and he, he weeps with them. And then commanding others to roll away the stone, Jesus steps forward and he speaks a word of command. And this dead man, Lazarus, steps out of the tomb alive. So word of this spreads like wildfire. Mary's friends are all uh, confounded by this. The people of Bethany can't believe what they've just witnessed. Lazarus, who was dead, is now alive. And this controversial rabbi, Jesus, is the one that did it. He has raised someone from the dead. And, and scripture says that many believed, but some, and this is crazy to me, some of this knowing and witnessing what Jesus did, raising someone from the dead, some of them determined that a man like this, someone with this kind of following, this kind of power, This person cannot continue to exist. See, for the ones in power, they saw Jesus as a sign of of revolution, as, as trouble with the Roman authorities. And so if they were going to maintain their place, this man, Jesus, this more than a man, Jesus, could not continue to live. And so they plot to have him put to death for raising someone else from the dead. 
but they want to wait until the moment is right. The high priest, it says in, in John's gospel, actually prophesied. This is interesting that, that the Spirit of God can speak and does speak to, to such flawed people. And, and uh, this high priest prophesies that Jesus would have to die for the sake of the people, that it would be expedient for just one to die than their nation to perish. And then he says, and many outsiders will come in because of Jesus's death. How right he was. Many believed because of what Jesus had done. Many continue to believe because of what happens next. So, so over the following weeks, as Passover is approaching, they are plotting, they're scheming, trying to figure out how to kill Jesus. And actually they are plotting how to kill Lazarus as well, which is crazy. Lazarus has already been dead. So I don't know <laughs> if he's too worried about it, but they want to wait until after the feasting. And so several weeks have now passed since the resurrection of Lazarus. It's been very tense in Judea. Jesus has been hesitant to visit, but as the Passover week approaches, Jesus goes back and he, he tells his disciples several times that his time has come, that it is time for him to return no matter what comes. And in fact, he knows what is coming, his death on the cross. And so during this week in Jerusalem, as he's going back from the temple to Bethany, he goes back to Bethany with his friends. And, and as the week is rushing on, it's now Wednesday evening you know that, that the following evening he'll have his last supper with his closest friends. He'll break bread with them. He'll wash their feet. He'll teach them as they walk out to the garden for one last evening together before he's betrayed, arrested, and hung on a cross and killed. But here on Wednesday evening, he's with friends in Bethany one last time, and they throw a dinner party in his honor. This is a, a dinner party. I want you to think about this context. In the home of Simon the leper is what it, it tells us. And not to belabor this, but you know that lepers are social outcasts. They're not welcome anywhere. They, they, they have this disease that's extremely contagious and they would have been pushed out of society. But there's something that has clearly taken place here. This outcast here is hosting a dinner party. Why? Because he's clearly someone who has been touched by Jesus, restored physically, socially, spiritually. He can't shake the nickname, the leper, but he is still throwing dinner parties. His life has been radically changed. And in this room, you have these three very familiar faces in attendance, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. How do I know that? John chapter 12 says this. It says, six days before the Passover, this is when Jesus first arrives in Bethany, where Lazarus was. Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And then what Mark's gospel tells us is that a couple days passed, and it says, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Now, this is the third time in the Gospels that we, we see this family, and we see Jesus get to interact with this, this family. And I want you to notice what each of these people are doing, what these women in particular are doing, Martha and Mary, in each of their interactions with Jesus. Remember Luke chapter 10? Jesus is at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and he's sitting and teaching, and what is Martha doing? What's she doing? She's serving, right? She's, she's serving. Where's Mary? She's at the feet of Jesus. In John chapter 11, when, when Jesus comes and Lazarus is still in the tomb, Martha hears that Jesus is coming and, and she's on the move. She's doing all the, the burial preparation. She's hosting people and she runs out to meet Jesus on the way. He, she doesn't even give him time to arrive. She goes and meets him. And when she, she does, she talks to him. And she's very active. She's always busy, it seems, always active. Mary, on the other hand, she's weeping alone at home. And when she finally comes out to meet Jesus, where does she fall? at the feet of Jesus. And now here during the last dinner of Jesus in Bethany, despite being in, in someone else's house, some of you are like this, what is Martha doing? She's serving. 
She's serving the meal. She's, she's cooking. She's moving about the place. I love this about Martha. She's again serving. And where is Mary? We'll see this in a moment again where she places herself at the feet of Jesus. And so in Mary and Martha, I've highlighted this before in years past, but we have these two contrasting personalities. And I think we can see ourselves in each one of them because some of you are more like Mary. Some of you are more like Martha. Martha's active. She's busy. She's get things done, write the checklist, complete the checklist, accomplish something, teach, serve, administrate, get things done. Meanwhile, Mary is contemplative. She's relational. She's concerned with getting good time with Jesus rather than doing things for Jesus. She's concerned about listening well, about, about spending quality time with him. Relationship, where Martha is concerned about responsibilities, the never-ending checklist of things to do. Martha's can't sit still because there's always more to do. And here's what we can't miss. Both these women are so different, but they are both beloved by Jesus. And so I wonder this morning, I'm, I'm married to a Mary personally. My wife, Beth, she loves to just sit for like four hours and have a quiet time with her close friend, Jesus. Might be an exaggeration, I don't know, but she definitely is more like Mary. I, on the other hand, I married a, an opposite personality type. I'm more like Martha. Some of you are writing that in your notes. Mark is Martha. That's okay. But I tend to think this way, and some of you are like this. You, you tend to think that time is only well spent if it's spent doing something right? Anyone with me on that? It's, it's only well spent if it's spent doing something. Even if that thing is resting, you're going, going to do that. You're going to accomplish that task. And so if you're like this, you will put things on your checklist that you've already done just so you can check them off. Any of you like that? Yeah. So weird. <laughs> Why do we do that? I do that all the time. So which are you? I'm not going to put you in a box. You can do that for yourselves. But I wonder this morning, if if you consider yourself in this passage, would you be paying attention? Would you be attentive to Jesus? I wonder this morning, which ones here are more like Mary? Would you raise your hand for me? Which ones are more like Mary? There's some. Which ones are, are more like Martha here today? How many of you don't know which one you're like? You're a Mary. Martha knows, right? And in this passage, we see Lazarus here also. What's Lazarus doing? Consider this. He's just sitting at the table eating, minding his own business. Let's cut him some slack, though. This guy was dead like a few weeks ago. <laughs> so if I'm, if I'm him, I'm, I'm taking it easy for a bit. I'm like, you know what, Martha, I would help you, but I was dead. So, <laughs> But here they are. They're gathered together, this, this awesome family. And Jesus loves each one of them. You see his tenderness toward each one of them in these passages. He loves each of these these personality types. These are his close friends. They know him, it seems like, almost no one else does in his life. And as they're gathered over this meal, conversation is flowing freely. Martha is busy with serving, and suddenly all the attention in the room is on Mary. It gets quiet in the room. As Mary does something that, yes, it's in line with her personality, but it's also far beyond the ordinary. She approaches the place where Jesus is reclining at the table with a piece of fine pottery in her hand, this alabaster jar, about a half liter. And it's filled with these very precious contents. You can tell that this is something expensive that she has. And here in this dinner party, despite all the joyful atmosphere of family and friends, Mary discerns that this gathering is different that she can't miss this opportunity. And, and, and she looks across the table at Jesus reclined there with his friends at this, this low-lying table. She knows that she is looking not just at a person, not a friend. This is her Lord. This is her King. And she does something completely extravagant and utterly humble. That's the first thing we see in Mary is that followers of Jesus renounce their pride. 
They renounce their pride. They, they no longer are trying to impress other people, trying to, to, to fit in by doing what everyone expects. No, Mary does something very extravagant and very humble. It says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. This is in the Gospel of John. And it says, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So Mary enters the room and she begins to pour this oil on Jesus' head, this costly, expensive ointment. She anoints his head and then she anoints his feet. And she doesn't just pour a little bit out of it. It says she breaks the flask. She saved it all for him. It's all for him. And the house begins to fill with this fragrant aroma as she kneels down to the ground and begins to wash his feet with this precious oil and to wipe his feet with her hair. Now, she doesn't know this. She's not doing this to impress anyone or to be an example to anyone of what service looks like. But Jesus, just a night later, will wash his disciples' feet. He'll do something very similar to what Mary is doing here. And she is not trying to, to convince anyone that they should serve in this way. She is simply convinced deep in her heart that Jesus is worthy of this. He is worthy of this. And in doing this act, she's demeaning herself in public. She's, she's doing something that not even a slave would be required to do. Down in the dirt at his feet letting down her hair in public in this, in this Near Eastern context. She's declaring through her actions that she doesn't care what everyone else thinks. She knows that Jesus is worthy and there is no task, there is no activity too demeaning to her if it means giving honor to her Lord. I wonder how many of us this morning have lost someone in our lives, someone important that we wish we could have just one more interaction with. Maybe you can think of that person. Just one more interaction, one more conversation, one more hug, one more dinner together. And here, Mary recognizes somehow that this hour of her Savior has come to depart out of this world, and she recognizes it and is not going to miss this moment. She is not going to miss this opportunity to express to him that he is worth everything to her. And so, so whether she fully grasps it or not, she's going to, to cherish this moment and she doesn't care what everyone else thinks. Jesus is precious to her. John 12, verse five, but Judas Iscariot, it's who was complaining about this? Who was irritated that this was happening? It, it, it's, it says that some people were grumbling, but John lets us know who. He says, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? I say this with, with some hesitation because you could potentially use this to call me out. But, but let me tell you, when people begin to preach about sin issues or these kinds of things, not with humility, but with pride, when, when they talk about doing pious acts, not with humility, but with pride, you can be pretty certain that they are probably struggling with this particular thing, this, this exact thing that they are calling out. See, Judas says something that sounds very, very pious here. We should sell this. We should give it to the poor. But what is clear is what underlies his protest is his own greed and his own pride. See, see the more pride we have, the, the less likely we are to, to, to debase ourselves, to, to get down on the ground and to, to do this kind of thing for anyone, let alone Jesus. And the more pride we have, the more we cringe and we're uncomfortable when we see these shows of affection or emotion, even toward our Lord. Some of us feel that way in, in worship. We see other people and the way they're, they're worshiping, the way they're getting into it. And, and like Mary, you know, they have tears running down their face and, and it bothers us. And that should cause us to examine our hearts. What's going on there? 
What's going on in our hearts? What's going on in the heart of Judas that he looks on this, this frankly, beautiful sacrificial act that, that Mary is doing, and he is just cringing at it. He does not like it. He said this in verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor. John giving us some insight. He says not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. See, that's, that's really what's going on here. John, the disciple, he apparently knows that Judas has this, this habit. Perhaps they all did, and they all kind of talked about this behind the scenes. But Judas remains in their fellowship. That's interesting. Next week, we'll get the opportunity to talk more about Judas. I'm actually going to be on a, at a conference all week. And so one of our deacons, uh, Tyler, is going to be preaching. And he asked me, Mark, what do you want me to preach on? And I said, well, you're going to preach about Judas. And uh, he thanked me profusely for that. <laughs> but, but this just blew me away. Here's Judas protesting this act of honor towards Jesus. He's bothered by it in his pride. And yet the next night, Judas will go out from this dinner and he'll go and set up the plans with with the chief priests and with those that are seeking to kill Jesus. And then he'll come back to their fellowship. And the very next night, before he finally goes and gets the silver coins and betrays his Lord, the very next night, Jesus will get down on his hands and knees and he will wash Judas's feet. Think about the humility of our Lord. There's no one like Jesus. There's no love like Jesus. His tenderness is so, so unmerited, undeserved, so full of grace. And there will be more to say about this next week but, but what is so clear in his attitude is this contrast with Mary, who can think of no higher use for this perfume than anointing her king. To her, it's no loss. It's just gain. Mary knows that there's nothing that she could possibly lose or give that compares to what we gain in Christ. What have we gained? The second thing we see is that followers of Jesus recognize their need. In other words, we, we discern. You discern the necessity and the reality of his death. No, no, no. She's not protesting giving this gift away. She's, she's preparing him for what she knows he must do. She's not saying, Lord, don't go to the cross. She's anointing him ahead of time for his burial. She sees her need and the reality of what he has come to do. She doesn't stand in her way. In this Jesus response, he says, leave her alone. I love that response to Judas. Leave her alone. For she has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with me, but you do not always have me. Now, I don't think that he's denouncing care for the poor. He seems to be more directly addressing Judas and what's going on in his heart because we know Jesus loves the poor. He pours out his compassion and his care on the poor constantly. He loves the poor, but he is moved by this extravagant show of love. I want you to think about Jesus knowing the cross that awaits him. No one else seems to get it. He keeps telling them, but they don't seem to get it or believe it or they're not willing to accept it. And he's in this room full of people that, that love him, but, but he must feel in some way so alone, that burden of the cross looming before him. And here one person gets it. She gets it. And, and I, just, I just think that must have been so precious to Jesus to see someone who, who was so in tune with what he was going through that she would anoint him ahead of time that she knew, that she knew somehow that her Lord would be buried. And he says this, 
She's done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand, and what she has done will be told of forever. Here we are this morning talking about it. She somehow discerns his death and that he will lay down his life for her, and she is anointing through this. She is anointing the very one who through his sacrifice on the cross will anoint her as forgiven, as washed, as a daughter of the king. And this is what the cross accomplishes the forgiveness of our sins, the cleansing of our hearts, the adoption into his kingdom as sons and daughters, eternal, everlasting life. Have you recognized your need for this? Have you discerned his death? Have you looked upon the cross and seen your sin there? That he did this for you. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. See, the Christian life is not about making yourself acceptable to God. You can try all you want, but you will never be able to. You will never accomplish it. We cannot do it in our sin, in our own strength, in our flesh. We cannot do it, and we don't need to. He has already done that. It is merely about receiving his unmerited favor toward you. He has made this costly sacrifice to make you his. And I think so often we treat our faith and, and this relationship with Jesus is some kind of therapy, some kind of behavioral correction. And it's like this. It's this behavior modification where we see, oh, I should be more like this. I should be more like Jesus in this way. So let me bend this way. And let me bend that way. And like the, the prongs on my wife's ring over time, when you bend metal again and again and again, what happens to it? It becomes brittle and it breaks. And that's, that's what a, a, an approach to our relationship with Jesus that's just based on our own works, our own righteousness, our own efforts, that's what it's like. It's like a bending of metal back and forth, a little better this way, a little worse this way, a little better this week, a little worse next week, until eventually it just breaks us. That is not what, what Jesus has accomplished through the cross. When we, when we behold the depth of his love for us, when we behold the cross, our response is no longer like a bending of metal. No, instead our cold hearts are warmed and softened and heated up so that they can actually be changed. We need him. Have you discerned your need of him? Have you discerned that he has come to reconcile us to himself, to soften our hearts, to make us new, to form us anew? See, in about 36 hours, Jesus will be betrayed in, in the garden. And as he's paraded between courtrooms and beaten and mocked and led through the streets as a common criminal, I love this. Because of what Mary has done, Jesus will go through all that still smelling like a king. The third thing we see is that followers of Jesus respond freely. They respond freely. When we grasp what we have in Christ, you see this, this act of Mary, this is not compelled. This is a free gift, an offering for him. We can't help but respond. Judas is right about one thing. This is extravagant. This is extravagant. This passage tells us that this pure nard, this, this, this spiced oil, this ointment, it costs 300 denarii, which is roughly one year of wages for a worker, a year. In today's dollars in this area, I don't, I don't know what that is for you, but, but in the Far East, this was very expensive. Let's say this is $60,000. This one bottle, $60,000. This is a massively valuable perfume. I often tell my wife when, we, when we're leaving the house or leaving the car, she asks me to lock it. And I'm like, why? There's nothing in there that's <laughs> worth all that much. Not so with Mary. Not so with Mary. This is an incredibly precious heirloom. There is something here that she has in her possession that is the most valuable thing, no doubt, that she possesses. And here, she has poured it all on Jesus. All of it. Not, not only that, but it, this struck me this week. She has saved it all for Jesus. 
I want you to think about this. I wonder, if you wonder about this, what purpose could she have used this precious gift for? Remember, her brother Lazarus had just been laid in a tomb just weeks before. This beloved brother, but he doesn't get the precious nard, does he? No, she gives her most precious possession to her dear Lord. When we in humility behold our Lord, behold the grace that he has lavished on us, we recognize that he is worthy of it all. And if she knew the hymn, I have no doubt Mary would be able to, to sing this. We're the whole realm of nature mine. That were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And here in this act of humble devotion, as Mary gets down and washes his, her Savior's feet, she's telling Jesus, not that he's worth $60,000 to her, no, but that he is worth what? Everything. Everything to her. She's coming, come to the place in her following of him that more than even what she has, she is his. She is his. Even harder than giving him our possessions, it, it's giving him ourselves that can be so difficult. Yet he's worth it and he's worthy of it. And, and yet what Mary knows here, what she knows, and I hope you'll grasp by faith today, is this, that he is worthy of it all. And, and for this expression of love, her testimony of devotion will be told of and is told of to this day. Have you renounced pride? To know you need a savior. Have you, have you discerned his death, recognizing your need for what he did for you? And will you respond? Will you respond freely? And maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you feel that, that brittleness of your heart right now. That you're just trying to do better all the time. And the invitation of the gospel is that the work is already done, that he has paid it all for you on the cross, every last bit. So just ask him, Lord, soften my heart. Lord, I see what you've done for me and I see that I needed it. Oh Lord, thank you. Matthew 16, 24 says this. It says, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Let's pray. Father, I pray that somehow we would grasp what Mary grasped that night. That you are worthy of all we have, that you are worthy of all we are. And Lord, I thank you that as you looked upon her and, and, and were pleased with her, Lord, I thank you that as we, as we grasp your worthiness, that you are pleased with us as well. You have called us sons and daughters. You have adopted us into the kingdom of everlasting life. Lord, I pray we would stop in our own efforts trying to, to, to do all this, to be better, to behave ourselves. Lord, I pray instead you would just give us an overflowing heart of love and affection toward you that, that results in us freely doing what pleases you. Lord, you bought us freedom and it cost everything. The very Son of God hung on a cross for us. Oh Lord, we can never repay you and yet we thank you. And we love you, Lord, and we thank you not just for the cross, but for the resurrection life that we have in you, Lord, that that night in which Mary anointed you was not the final time she saw you, Lord, but no, she is with you now in glory and we look forward to that glorious hope for ourselves. Oh God, sanctify us. Make us more like you. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Would you please, when you're ready, stand, and we're going to, to worship and praise our Lord. And for those that need it, there will be some folks that will go, gather over there to pray with you and pray for you.